We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. A few verses before, Paul states that I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. Now, verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, his sin and his crimes, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect endurance or patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. As I've stated before, in the Old Covenant, when God called prophets, he never called practicing sinners. He called people who were morally upright or were trying to live in the law. A lot of people think he's looking for gross sinners. No, they have to change and repent before he deals with them. But anytime you see prophets called in the Old Covenant, they were doing what they thought was right, and they were not criminals or violent people, okay? And we'll find the thing still goes on now. The Lord often does not mess with extreme, violent, wicked people. Psalm says he hates the soul of a violent man. Three times in Scripture, he says he laughs at their calamity, and when he judges them and cuts them off, he mocks them. So that's hard for people to understand. They want to talk about all the time that God so loved the world. That love is foremost benevolence, and it's in general to everybody until they fight against that and rebel against him and be set in their wickedness, then God doesn't deal with them like he originally did. That's why the majority of people are going to the lake of fire. So if he loved them so much, how come he's sending most of them to hell? Because they're wicked and rebellious and they will not repent. They spurn his holiness and they're going to answer for it. He's a holy God and he's not going to put up with it. And even Jesus said, people don't like quoting that, yes, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then a few verses down, and he that does not believe or obey the son, the wrath of God remains on him. That means his hatred towards sin is out against it. All people like to say, well, he hates the sin but loves the sinner. There's a time he doesn't love the wicked sinner. He does not do them good because they spurn his grace. And that's what's going to be horrible about the lake of fire. God is going to have total disregard for them and his anger and wrath will be experiencing on them for eternity. So people need to fear the Lord properly and not have this sentimental view because it is not scriptural. It's been perverted by many ministers and therefore, people think they can sin against God and he'll somehow forgive everything they do as they live in their wickedness. Well, he's not going uh, to do it, okay? So Paul states he basically was a, a murderer and a violent against the followers of Jesus. He called himself the foremost among sinners. And why he did that was because he murdered the leaders of this new sect he called, these Jesus, these Nazarene, he thought they were false. He thought Christ was a false prophet. So he murdered them. The worst thing a person can do in this life, other than rebel against God, the actions are to harm the children of God. When he judges the nations 
and separates the goats from the sheep. It's going to be on how they treat it or didn't treat his followers. When he pours out the most wrath during the tribulation period, it's because they murdered and killed his saints, his children, and his prophets. So that's why he considered himself the foremost. He did the sins that would provoke God the most. But he had the advantage that he didn't do it knowingly, yet sin is sin. And as Jesus said, he that doesn't do God's will or is ignorant, he shall be beaten with fewer stripes. Doesn't say he's going to be excused. And the one that willfully sins against God and knows what he's to do and doesn't do it, he said he will be beaten with many stripes. So deception in itself is not going to excuse anybody. And we'll see why later. So, but he was not a murderer for selfish reasons money or vengeance. And actually, in his eyes, he was not murdering. He was killing criminals, blasphemers. And under the law, this was permissible under Moses. You blasphemed God. You were a false prophet. You were stoned to death. So he thought this should be done. So when government is supposed to execute criminals, which it doesn't do anymore, or very rarely, Paul said they do not bear the sword in vain the sword was for putting to death. It was not for spanking. He said, they are ministers of God and avengers of evil. God expects established government to maintain order in society and punish those who are excessively wicked outwardly. He doesn't talk about the heart and what they do and what they think. But when they robbed and raped and murdered people, he expected government to put them to death. Well, they don't do it, and that's why we have so much evil in the world. Not only do we not put them to death, we spend fifty and 60000 a year taking care of these people. And that money could be spent elsewhere, okay? In the old covenant under Moses, there were no jails. You paid a fine if you said you were beaten, and if it was extreme, you were stoned to death. They didn't spend money taking care of criminals, okay? That's a perversion of our societies. So from Paul's standpoint, he was killing. Killing is justification by the government. The government has right to kill murderers, those who abuse society and hurt people. It's their job to do it. Murdering is a selfish killing for money, vengeance, or various personal reasons. And when the scripture, the 10th commandment, one of the 10, says thou shall not murder, it does not say thou shall not kill, but all the translators like kill. And then they go around saying, well, then we couldn't kill criminals either. God made that very plain in both covenants. He said, whosoever shall murder, he shall be killed. So if a person spills the blood of another man, he should be killed. Government has the right and duty to exercise judgment on criminals. So we need to understand this. Okay. Now let's go to John, the Gospel of John. So Paul was going around. He got letters from the high priest, which very few people got. And he was capturing, trying to get the leaders, and he was hauling them back to be tried and put to death. So he was persecuting them, and the followers 
of Christ. He thought Jesus was a false prophet and that these were his false followers. But he was doing what Jesus said would happen. The Gospel of John 16, verse 2, they will put you out of the churches or synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. They're still doing that. A lot of religions do that. If you don't agree with them, they put you to death. So they were doing it then. But notice even Jesus used the word kill because their intention was they were deceived. But later on, when the Pharisees were going to plot to kill him, he called them murderers. He says, and your father's the devil, and you'll do what he did in the beginning. He instigated Cain to kill Abel. That's what he meant in the beginning. He said, and you'll do your father's work. See, they thought they were followers of Jehovah. He called them followers of the devil. So the devil's your father. No wonder they wanted to kill him. These were religious leaders. They didn't like that, okay? So whoever kills you is doing God a service. So Paul was thinking he was doing God a service. According to the law of Moses, he was doing what should have been done to Jews that were under the covenant. But he was going excessively out of his way, and he was having a hard time because the Lord was going to tell him, it's going to be hard for you to kick against your conscience. A person would not be deceived at any level if they followed their conscience and obeyed it and the light it has, it would trap them and tell them something's wrong. So while Paul was doing this, his conscience started to bother him. But he would lay it aside and quote the law. They got to be put to death. And the Lord was dealing with his conscience and he wouldn't want to listen. And that's when Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And remember, that was the train oxen. You yoked them, and they didn't like being yoked. And so if they didn't walk a path, you poked them in the back of his leg. They usually put a thorn on a long stick, and he would kick at it, but he couldn't stop it. And eventually, after he gets poked enough, he starts binding. And then once he's learned his way, the goad doesn't have to be used anymore. He knows, and he obeys the command. So that's what he was telling Paul, you're being brought under. God's dealing with you, and he's dealing with your conscience, and you're still fighting him. So that's why the Lord dealt with him the way he did. He believed he was doing Jehovah's will, yet he was totally deceived in this, okay? So under the law and apostolic times, which is now, we should say, to kill violent criminals was ordered by God under the law and under the new covenant. Governments are to punish evildoers, those who are openly abrasive to people and rob them and rape them and murder. He wanted them put to death. And all these bleeding heart liberal ministers who are false ministers, they try to side with the devil and say, oh, let's just forgive them. There is no forgiveness for certain crimes even under God. Under the law, you committed certain crimes. They dragged you away from the altar of mercy and put you to death, okay? Under the new, even if the people were kept and repented, God expected them to be put to death. See, that's one of the reasons we're not to pray for their life. If a Christian fell into gross sin and somehow murdered somebody, he's not a Christian then, but he can repent. 
but he's still supposed to be put to death by the government. God is no respect for a person. He should get grace to die. And even Peter said, what does it concern you that you're punished for your sins? He said, you should expect that. He said, if you do good and are punished, that's for the Lord's honor and you bear it. But if you are beaten for your crimes or something you do, then you should endure it. So there was no justification nor no mercy. He expected justice and holiness in society, and he expected foremost the Christians to behave themselves in society because they represented him. So Paul said they are ministers of God. That don't mean they're saved. It means the government itself and the police force and what maintains order is God's will. He expects this in all societies. And when he doesn't have it, judgment follows. So he wants them to maintain order in society. Governments are avengers. Avenger does not mean you rehabilitate them. See, nowadays, everybody wants to be rehabilitated. Scripture didn't teach that. They were to be punished, is what he said. And the main thing he was talking about was being put to death for excessive criminal activity in society. And he said, avenger of God, a punisher of the evil. Didn't say the rehabilitation of the evil. So people have a perverse understanding, and many false Christian ministers do, and they're supporting the devil's work by not doing what God tells them to do. Okay. So he, as a Jewish leader, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was given permission by the high priests and given letters, and this was unusual. Uh, he had to be very honored to get that. But he's wanted to arrest and bring back the leaders and have them tried and stoned to death for falseness. He thought they were false supporters of the sect of the Nazarenes. They called them to them the way because he considered Jesus a false prophet like the Pharisees did. Uh -huh. Well, he did it in ignorance and thinking he was doing God's will. The Pharisees, some of them, they knew what they were doing and they were jealous and he was affecting their money. So they didn't care if he was a good man in society and God allowed the devil to deceive them. If they knew who he was, they would have been afraid to crucify him. If they knew he was the Lord of glory, which he was, and they were going to answer for it. And that's why he told the Pharisees as a whole, he says, you cannot be saved. You'll die in your sins because you don't believe who I am. And not only that, you try to kill me and you exceeded in murdering me. And they didn't do it from a just heart. They were covetous and greedy. And when they finally decided to put Jesus to death was the week after he went into the temple and kicked all the money changers' tables over. They were making merchandise by selling sacrifices, and they would jack up the prices, and you had to buy it from the priests. They didn't recognize outsiders. They had a monopoly, and it was for greed is why they were doing it, okay? So he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. So they were crooked and wicked, and that's how God saw them, the religious leaders of his time, okay? So he was in error of who Jesus was. He was in on the murdering of the disciples of Jesus. He held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. 
So as far as God is concerned, he's just as guilty as the ones who threw the stones. So if you support something, God holds you guilty. If two or three people rob a bank and one sits in a getaway car and someone in the bank is killed, all of them, and the man in the getaway car is charged with murder as if they did it themselves. So that's the law. And so God looks at the motive in the heart. And that's why John said, don't welcome these false teachers and these misguided. They don't recognize who Christ is. He said, you do not welcome them in your homes. You don't give them Christian hospitality. You don't support them. When you turn them away, you don't say, God bless you or God Godspeed. He said, lest you be partakers of their evil. So be very careful who you want to bless. Because if they're wicked, you're partakers of what they're doing if you stop blessing them. That's the context that God thinks. He says, do good to all, but you do not bless the work of their hands if it's evil. And John actually believed. He said, you will be partakers of their evil. Even if you turn them out as false teachers, you don't wish them good in what they're doing because it's evil and it's false and God doesn't like it. Okay. So he was in an era of what he was doing. And it says, for that reason, God showed great patience to him. He saw his motives. He saw his zeal. And even though it's an error, he thought, and he knew when I get him, he'll be zealous for me. If he's this zealous under the law and he's honest, even though he's deceived, he means well, but he's deceived. He'll make a good disciple. He watched him. He said, God called him for that reason to let people know there was hope for anybody, the worst of sinners, if they truly repented and turned to the Lord. And he called him the foremost because he killed the followers of Jesus. And that's about the worst sin you could do as far as God is concerned, outside of blaspheming him. But on earth, like I say, the judgments are going to be for the nations, how you treated my Christians or how you didn't treat them. That's going to be the basis of the judgment. So God's telling people what he thinks about those who persecute his. And when he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. He didn't say you're persecuting my followers, which he was. Christ was in them. He was in his followers. He said, you're persecuting me. And that's how God always looks at these things, okay? So being deceived and misguided does not excuse sins. Judgments are different, though. If people follow a good conscience and God's law, they would not enter into these great false mistakes. God showed much patience with the ignorant, but the willful and the evil sinner, he deals with a little differently. Repentance is the acknowledgement of our wrongs, yet many are in error and still fall under God's judgment, but it's lesser sins, but nevertheless they are punished. Ignorance is not an excuse in itself. When people are ignorant, it means they've not pursued God for the truth. These people are going to stand before the Lord, and they're not going to say, well, my minister or my teacher, I didn't have nobody. He's not your fault. You have a conscience. You have Bibles. You could have pursued yourself, but you thought it was up to everybody else. So you're not excused. 
But then those who rebel against him and backslide, they're going to receive greater punishments for the grace and truth they were given. Those who backslide and fall away and are cut off from Christ, Peter said it's better not to have known the way than to depart from it. So he was saying it's better that you never got saved if you're going to turn away from God because he's going to hold you extra in punishment because you've despised much grace and you've crucified Christ again. So Hebrews says, how much worthy of more punishment you think they shall receive who trample the blood of Christ and despise the spirit of grace? It's rhetorical. They're going to receive greater and much more punishment. The hypocrite and the false teacher will receive the greater of damnations. Jesus said the hypocrite will receive the greater. Now, the only people with him will be the serial killers and the wicked dictators and generals that stir up wars because they're trying to get glory for themselves, and they don't care about the hundreds of thousands of soldiers that have to die as long as it's for their glory. They go into a deep lake of fire. God doesn't overlook them. Every word that the wicked do in opposition to God, they're going to answer for. How much more for these greater sins? Then here it says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. So he sort of bursts forth in praise when he's thinking about God's mercy to him and grace and how he would move on any sinner that was willing to repent and that not had passed the point where God judged them or where they blasphemed his spirit. There's a time he cuts grace off. People don't believe that, but he does. Paul said he is gracious to whom he'll be gracious, and he'll harden whom he wishes to harden. But he never does that until they harden himself against him. Uh huh. But there's a time that he judges, and then just out of terror and fear, people call out to the Lord. That's not repentance. That's remorse. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry they're going to be punished but they're not repentant, and they wouldn't change. They're just afraid of the punishment. And that's why many people try to get right with God when they're dying. They live their whole life despising God, and the last few minutes of their life, they think they're going to find mercy. Most of them are not going to, because God looks at the motive and intent. He's not trying to save people from hell just to keep them out of hell. He not only saves people, to save them from hell, but it's mainly to serve him in righteousness and be a follower. And how can you do that in the last five minutes of your life? So I wouldn't bank too much on deathbed repentances. If there are some, they're very few, and God has his reasons. So he praises God, and he says he's the king eternal, ever living to show mercy to sinners that he can bring them to God is what he's after. It's not God's will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth, that all repent and get right. So that is the general intention of God. The exception does not negate the general word. The excessively wicked, he can cut off, and he cuts off in their sin, and there's no hope for them. See? But he lets most people live out their life however they want. But he meets them at judgment day. So he's not quick to act. He could judge 
any sinner for committing a gross sin. He could strike him dead any time he wants to and would be just. But he's long-suffering in patience. And like he told the Jews through Paul, God has put up with your rebellion. You're fighting against the gospel. And said, you think God's excusing you. He says, you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. As long as you live, you're storing up more wrath. It means he's being more gracious to you because he's letting you live in your evil. And that's what it means that God is good toward the evil and unthankful. He doesn't strike them dead immediately and send them to hell. Many a wicked person lives a full life, but when they die, they're going to answer for all those years of extension of God's grace to them. He's just in all of his dealings, and they're going to be shocked of how much they're going to have to answer for it. Okay? So, immortal. He's God, the immortal one. No corruption or decay. No change in his overall benevolence towards sinners. In general, all sinners that come into the world, uh, he has patience with and long-suffering. Even if they have original sin, he does not hold them basically accountable for that. He holds them accountable for their actions. So he expects, like he did with Cain, when we're tempted to murder and kill his brother, he warned him. He said, the sin crouches at your door. It means like a demon. Well, it was Satan, the murderer, encouraging him. He said, but overcome it. So God expected people. He didn't expect perfections from the fallen nature, but he set standards. And if they followed their conscience and they tried to make things right when they did wrong, he honored that. He respected that. He didn't hold them to the pure gospel that every sin they do because his son paid for all of that. He could deal with them under conscience until they heard the full gospel. So the Jew that did not hear the gospel, was still judged according to the law. And that's why Paul went to synagogues to give them the true gospel, and some of the righteous Jews came to the Lord. They didn't argue or fight. They moved right into the Lord. And of course, they were thrown out of the synagogues, and the ones that rejected him, God holds them responsible. See, once you reject the truth, you show yourself unworthy. So he deals with people in the light they have. Uh-huh. And he winks at a lot of ignorance, but not when the gospel comes. But people are given the true gospel. I'm not talking about most of this false religious Calvinistic lies and this liberal beliefs. That's not the gospel. When they come under conviction for their sin, and they'll know it, and they're disturbed, and then they're offered a way out if they reject it, then God doesn't hold them in good light anymore. Anything they did before then that he would have tolerated, he doesn't anymore. To much truth is given, much is required. Cornelius was a righteous Gentile. He did not convert to Judaism. He was not a proselyte. And yet he was righteous before God. Even the Jews recognized how good he was. Uh-huh. And the angel himself came and said, your good deeds have come up before the Lord. He didn't say you're a filthy sinner and you need to be saved. He says your righteous deeds have come up and now God's going to show you a more perfect way. Now, when Peter came and gave him the gospel, if he rejected it, God would not have considered him righteous anymore. 
he would have been held accountable. But he received it immediately and his household, and they were saved and filled with the Spirit immediately. There was no deep repentance of sins. They had already walked in the light that they have. When we find that six or so of the disciples of John the Baptist, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they went over and followed Jesus. You don't hear of any true repentance because they were righteous according to the law and according to John the Baptist. And all of a sudden, when they saw the truth, they moved right into it. They saw who he was, and they moved, and they accepted what the blood did for them under the Old and the New Testament. So everybody's not an outward wicked person that comes to the Lord. He judges according to conscience and light. But when the true gospel comes, revelation, and the apostles speak it, James, it's those who do not obey the gospel who will be damned. It didn't say those who didn't hear the gospel. He'll judge them according to their conscience, and their conscience, if they followed it, would keep them out of murder, idolatry, stealing, because it's the inner law given to them. And they would make things right, and he expected them to do that. Under the law, if you stole something, you had to pay four times as much back. And if you didn't have nothing, you became a servant or slave until it was paid. Uh, so he expected some restitution. A lot of people under the new think, well, they get it forgiven, they don't have to worry about it. If you rob somebody and you come to the Lord, he's going to tell you to go pay it back. That's the general term. You're not free from it unless the Lord, and only he'll free you under certain conditions. But People think, oh, we just confess it, we confess it, and they don't repent, and they don't try to make things right. Well, it's not forgiven. They're not forgiven by the Lord, okay? Lip service does not appeal to the Lord if there's not a heart following it in deeds and works. So again, we see overall uh, God's immortal, and he's benevolent. He doesn't change. He's still kind and merciful to the evil and the unthankful. They complain and murmur that God don't do this and God don't do that, and they don't understand their living. And he has instructed them dead for their blasphemy and for their murmuring and complaining and being unthankful. He could easily do that and be justified in it. So they're wicked and they're deceived, and the sin will deceive them further and it will not excuse them, okay? So he's not quick to judge them for their evil. He's not quick in avenging his holiness, but he will. See, he doesn't overlook these things. People think the love of God and his grace overlooks justice and holiness. It doesn't do it. See, judgment and mercy, the scripture says, have kissed. He doesn't sacrifice one for the other until certain conditions are met. So these are facets of God. Judgment, holiness, grace, loving kindness. And you can't take a facet away from a diamond. It wouldn't be a diamond anymore. And you can't take a facet away from God. He would not be God anymore. So he works these things out. So he can be benevolent toward the sinner and want them to repent, but he can exercise his anger and wrath on them if they continue in it, he can do those at the same time. 
we have a one-track mind. He doesn't. He sees all, everything under heaven he sees. He knows motive and intent of everybody's heart 24 hours a day. Nothing passes his scrutiny. He sees all. He's everywhere, okay? And so people think they're going to be excused for certain things. He's not going to excuse it. There's not confession and repentance. There is no forgiveness from him. Wrath waits for them. And Jesus said it abides on them. So the person that hears the gospel and refuses it, God's wrath is still on them. And Paul said, we are saved from the wrath of God. But see, his wrath now is not always expressed. He's holding it. They're storing it up. But one day, in justice and holiness, they have to answer for it. So to spurn grace is a deadly thing. Those who's been more gracious to will receive the greater punishments in hell. Uh, so people need to remember that. He's fair and just in all of his dealings. He's no respecter of people. He watches how they act and how they respond to his mercies and grace. Grace is God's favor and his abilities given to people, even the sinner, and waits for them to respond. He's good to the unthankful. He offers them salvation. He's patient. He doesn't deal with them immediately. But grace does not save by itself. Proverbs tells us the person that forsakes his sin confesses and forsakes it shall find mercy. So God can extend grace, but he cannot forgive people without repentance, without acknowledgement and a turning from. So we have a lot of professing Christians that confess but they don't repent. They still live their selfish lives. Therefore, they are not forgiven. They're deceived. And they're saying, Lord, Lord. And he's going to one day say, I never knew you because you weren't mine. Oh, you believed who I was. The devils believed that. They knew he was the Holy One of Israel. They knew he was God in the flesh when his disciples didn't see it. Uh -huh. But it didn't save them, did it? And it's not going to save anybody who does not follow the Lord, confess and repent, and keep short accounts when sins and problems come into their life. That's what we have a high priest for, okay? And if we don't move quick enough, uh, those who are his, he chastens them to get their attention. He punishes them. And they either submit or they rebel against him. And if they don't submit after several offers by God, he cuts that branch off and that person is no longer in Christ. They were once saved, but they're not saved anymore. And he says, and their end will be burning. He's making it plain where the wicked backslider is going. Okay. So he's invisible. Okay. Invisible. He's present everywhere, yet unseen as the spirit that indwells the universe, the universe is in him. He's not just in the universe. Everything is upheld by him continuously. So angels don't see the spirit of God no more than we do. Oh, they see manifestations of God and Christ on the throne. But the full Godhead is everywhere. And so he's invisible to them. He's the spirit of the universe. Every law, natural and spiritual, 
and mental is sustained by him. Without him, it could not exist or continue on. So he holds everything together. And the scripture tells us in Old and New that it's Jesus Christ did this. He was, as the word of God, he's one with the Father and the Spirit. He was one with the Creator. He was the Creator. It says he created all things for himself. Okay? So we need to understand that. Present everywhere, but unseen, invisible. This is his complete Godhead. He can manifest himself any way he wants. Through angels, he did it through Christ, and the foremost revealing himself. He told them, you see me, you see the Father. Paul said, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Now that he's resurrected, he has the full use of it. So God was in him completely, and he's next to us completely. There is not a place he is not complete in who he is. Our minds cannot fathom those kind of things. So he can and does manifest himself in various ways. Yet we and angels live and move and exist in God. And that's why outside of him, there's nothing that's not known or sustained. He's the sustainer, the creator, and the sustainer of everything that's known and unknown. Okay, That's why the angel of God, Jesus said, the angels of these ones who follow me, they always behold his face. Always. Well, they're not standing in front of a throne looking in his face. It means wherever they are in the universe, they have full awareness of who God is. And John said, when we cross over, we shall know as we are known. So whatever we're made for in immortality, it said, Jesus said, you'll be like the angels. Well, they know God fully. However, they were made to know God. That's how they know him. Uh-huh. He reveals himself fully. There's no sin or no hindrance in their communication. And so we need to see that's why he's the invisible God. Let's take a break here.